Hello there and welcome to the Bunkerzilla Film Roy here at Bunkerzilla UK, the place where we digest the latest movie news and movie reviews. I'm your host as always, Ian Bolton, and joined indoors, in person, in the flesh, and at a sensible two metre distance, it's Christian R. Allen. So could you repeat that? You're too far away for me to hear you. Oh, do I have to start shouting? Just shout really loud to me. Two metres is too far. Well, I think I might break the microphones if I shout, so I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> have we already told the audience that you are exactly the right length of distance between us? Yes, we so, did about two episodes ago, I about believe. About two episodes ago. Oh, I'm just using the same anecdotes. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. Anyway, how are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. It's nice to be inside your house for the first time. <laughs> In what, three, four months? Yeah, quite a while. Like, if, if, I mean, you were keeping me outside even before COVID-19 just because, well... My reputation, obviously. Ah, but how's your cinematic week been? Uh, yeah, quite a lot of movies. Um, what was the last film I talked to? I, 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 did I talk about watching Dirty Harry last week? You did not. No. no. I, was, I watched Dirty Harry, um, which was nice. Uh, it's not really nice. It's quite unpleasant, but in an enjoyable sort of way. Um, my partner had never seen it before, and she, she agrees that um, the deliveries of the punk line are the coolest lines ever delivered in the history of film. It's nice to see Clint Eastwood not being a cowboy as well, which is. A <laughs> well, he's a bit of an urban cowboy here, isn't he? It kind of is. It's basically the no, man of no man, uh, the man with no name who has three names. Ironically, Blondie being my favourite, just kind of dropped in the middle of a uh, the Zodiac killings, is my understanding. Okay. Um, and aside from that, I also jumping on that. We we kept with the sort of like the serial killer themed. We watch. Um, uh, we watched uh, Bong Joon-ho's um, early, uh, I think it's 2003 piece, Memories of Murder. Uh, I've heard of it, I haven't seen it. It's very good, it's hard, to, it's hard to get, I don't think it's actually had a physical release in the UK, which is really annoying. I'm not sure, but we'll have a look into that later on. Yeah, I think, I think, it, I think it had a Blu-ray in Germany. Ah. So, <laughs> so if you're desperate, it's really good. I mean, it's, it's not... If you're going into it expecting Parasite, it's not that kind of film. I mean, it's still mm. horrible, but it's, it's more of a... I guess it's a straight narrative. It's a, basically is the the first modern serial killer in South Korean history. Mm. And it's sort of the ineptitude of the police. Normally, when it's, it's fascinating because normally when you watch a sort of Hollywood um, crime drama, you, you have these amazing detectives who sort of like find the clues, solve the murderer, you know, find the murderers, I should say, and put them behind bars. This is just incompetence galore. Oh. Just like like, stay, like setting up evidence and uh, just terrible police brutality and corruption. Ah, okay. okay, and it's uh, infuriating. Uh, ah. Yeah, we also watched Seven as well because we wanted you know an even cheerier day. <laughs> this sounds like the most delightful film viewing week you've ever had. <laughs> well, the best. I mean, I I, I don't want to. Is there anyone out there who hasn't seen Seven yet? Because Mitch, Mitch had never seen Seven, so like the the John Doe revelations and stuff like that were generally quite shocking to her. Like, um, I was really impressed because, um, obviously the reveal of who's, who's actually playing John Doe is kind of, is, was a surprise at the time. Yeah. He, the, all the sequences of John Doe during the film, you cannot tell who's playing him at all. It's like mm. really clever. Um, but yeah, we decided, uh, <laughs> should I just list off the films I've watched this week? And see how happy we get. Well, I mean, the next one we watched was Ocean's Wave, which is a Studio Ghibli TV movie. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's a right, it's a nice bit of slice of life, kind of in the same vein as, um, uh, um, Only Yesterday. Only Yesterday, thank you. Um, but it's, it's, it's 70 minutes long. Mm. So that's quite nice. I, I, 
I'm starting to appreciate shorter movies. The the uh, more necessary it is for me to go to the toilet because mm. now I'm in my thirties. My body is falling apart. That's how it works, right? You're slightly older than me. Have you, has your body falling apart as well? Uh, I don't. <laughs> or have you just been in a, such a gradual decline since birth? You can't even tell. I, I can't even tell. <laughs> <laughs> I was born declined. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, a few other films we watched. We watched um, uh, Coen Brothers' Burn After Reading. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't mind that one. Oh, quite, I thought it was fun. I mean, it kind of, it's, it's fluffy nonsense and it doesn't really go anywhere, but it's, I enjoyed the ride immensely. Yeah, I know audiences were kind of going, well, well, well what? what happens how does it go it all end and stuff <laughs> like that it's like the current bro is delightfully like saying f you to you if you want to have a proper ending it's like you make your own conclusions it's make it use your own imagination as to what happens post credits i mean it was a, a similar vein to um i've used that expression too much already um it was similar to uh hell caesar which i really liked hell caesar i liked as well i like but i think audiences didn't really take to it at all it wasn't one of the more successful films on the current movies. i think Obviously, I think the most successful ones, obviously, No Country for Old Men, obviously, mm. because of the Oscar success as well. Yeah. Um, it was their turn that year. Yeah. And I don't think, I might be wrong. It depends if uh, anyone's really looked into the Coen Brothers box office uh, returns. But I think a lot of their films are kind of like the very small budget affairs, but they still make their money back regardless. Yeah. They, they make a, fa- a fair profit from what's been spent on But them. not necessarily the $300 million opening weekend. Well, that, no, that's even too high in itself. A hundred million dollar weekend or I, something like The that. only films of theirs I could think of that were proper, you could consider a hit, and I could be wrong, is um, uh, No Country for Old Men and um, True Grit. Yes, True Grit. Yeah, you're right there. Uh, I think yeah, tr- I think those two are probably the more successful financial ones. Mm. I really, I enjoyed True Grit. I think I enjoyed that more than I, um, uh, Country for Old Men. I think, and and this is the thing when. Um, this was the year uh, Colin Firth won for King's Speech and Jeff Bridges was nominated for True Grit, where the previous year, Jeff Bridges won for Crazy Heart and Colin Firth lost for uh, A Single Man. Oh. I personally think the Oscar Oscar ones are in reverse, so or they should have been delivered in reverse. So basically, I think Colin Firth should have won for A Single Man because that's so much more kind of in-depth, heartbreaking grief of someone who's lost a really close companion. And I think Jeff Bridges had a little bit more to kind of uh, bring with True Grip because obviously he's the sort of old ranger who's who's gruff. He has his own sort of misgivings and all that sort of stuff. So I think I think all four that all four of those roles are good, but I think they won the Oscars for the wrong ones in different years. I mean, th- th- <laughs> there are so many Oscar winners who won for the wrong film. Like, oh yeah. I mean, like, um, or, or no, you didn't even win at all. Um, the one that springs to mind would be um, uh, Denzel Washington, like with Training Day instead of um, instead of uh, Malcolm X. The idea, the understanding is that his Oscar win for Training Day was kind of like a, an apology by the Academy for like not a pretty. You know, uh, well, that was also because he was also up against Russell Crowe, and Russell Crowe had been winning a lot for A Beautiful Mind, and then there was the phone. Oh, I think there, yes. there was the phone incident. I think I've talked about this before. <laughs> the did, phone yes. incidents in a hotel where I had completely forgotten about that. Where it didn't look great. It was like it was just after the BAFTA win, and the Oscar votes were still being 
still being allowed. Um, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but I think some of that played into I people's decisions. wouldn't be surprised. Was that around about the time that brilliant episode of South Park came out where Russell Crowe just goes around the world punching people? Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. With his little tugboat with a face. Yeah. Um, so I think, I, think certain, I think certain factors like that played into, played into um, the Oscar voters' minds a little bit. I can, I can and, totally see that. And they're not going to lose any sleep by not giving Russell Crowe another Oscar because he already won one for Gladiator. Yeah. So Was it Gladiator? I thought it was A Beautiful Mind. No, no, he won for Gladiator. He didn't win for Beautiful Mind. Oh, that Beautiful right. Mind was the year when Denzel won for Training Day. Right. So, so, <laughs> we're talking about events 20 years ago, but in my head they're only like a couple of weeks ago. Oh, fair enough. Oh, God, I'm getting old. This is just the recurring theme of the podcast, <laughs> my declining state of being, like... <laughs> But um, uh, uh, talking about declining state of being, the next film we watched, sort of keeping in a sort of like espionage, and George Clooney was Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Mm -hmm. starring Sam Rockwell. And um, I hadn't seen it before. I'd I'd never really heard of this film, to be honest. It was a fairly low-key release. Yeah. I I really, really took to it. Um, It's really interesting. Some of my favourite films are films about making television programmes and films about espionage, especially Cold War. So my Venn diagram of entertainment was just a a complete circle of these two for this film. (laughs) I I had no idea that the guy who created Blind Date was also a a spy for presumably the American government. It's not quite made clear. I mean, Mm. it's it's a very ambiguous movie and um, probably because the story is ambiguous itself. It's probably the thing of inspired by true events or kind of, kind of, it's just a possibility. It's a possibility. Well, it feels like a very unreliable narrator. Yes. And they, they, the real figure himself. So I like the fact that they, they've just kind of played with that. So mm-hmm. it's a similar vein to... Um, I've, that's the third time I've had similar vein. I need, I need a thesaurus in front of me, obviously. Um, I was just thinking it's, it, it's reminiscent of... Um, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, okay. Yeah, with Johnny Depp. So it's, it's kind of that... It's based on it's based on the diaries of a real life person, but can we actually trust that any of this actually happened at all? I'm still not convinced Toby Maguire was a real person <laughs> in the film, oh. not, not, not in general. <laughs> it's like then who was Spider Man, Christian? Who was Spider Man? There is no Spider Man. It's just two hours of lovely shots of New York <laughs> and Willem Dafoe. Yeah, just going crazy talking to himself. It, it does make me sad that William Defoe still hasn't played the Joker. But those, those are oh yeah, and we watched Goldeneye as well because why not? Yeah, Goldeneye because yes, it's the it's the best of the Brosnan four. Oh, definitely the best. I mean, like I I don't think Eric Serra's um, score works particularly well. The experience of love. Well, his, his music works phenomenally well for Leon, which is sort of a similar similar movie. In, in a sense, but it just it doesn't work for Bond at all. I mean, like the only bit, the only bit of the score that really works is when the, the main theme kicks in, when the, he goes crazy with a tank in St. Petersburg. Fair enough. Which I don't, I don't, I'd forgotten how, what an amazing sequence that is. I didn't realise that was actually filmed there as well. Yeah, I think it was partially filmed there and also on, on a stage of like Pinewood. Or I, think they, I think it was Shepparton. I think they had to build a new uh, well, with this, a, with a new the statue set. and the, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I remember who. I remember there was a bit of a hoo ha about them having to build a new studio so they could film because other films were taking up the studios of Star Wars prequels. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not around that time. Probably not. Was, yeah, because yeah. Golden Eye is ninety five. Golden Eye is ninety five. Star Wars the first prequel was ninety nine. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know when he started working on that. I I don't know. I, I mean, technically started working on it in the mid seventies. I mean, like. <laughs> 
the, fir- the first draft script of Star Wars is episodes one to six. George Lucas describes it as being a fat script. Uh, it was a big script. Yeah. And it was released in 99, I got it right. Hey, well done. You remembered a thing. Yes, I remembered a thing, and I just had to double-check my, my <laughs> notes just to make sure I got it right. When are we going to be reviewing Phantom Menace for this podcast? That's uh, what every listener wants to know. When episode 11 comes out. Yeah, well, if that ever happens. Maybe, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think the discourse on that has been kind of done to death, to be honest. No. Like, no one has discussed the Star Wars movies in great length whatsoever in any form of visual or audio media. That's just a lie. Am I being wrong? Maybe. I'm not sure. Not sure. Like All I'm seeing at the moment is just a lot of videos flashing up on YouTube telling me how Disney are going to retcon the sequel trilogy and erase them from history. And I'm a bit like, I don't think that's how it works. (laughs) I'm I'm just kind of... I'm just kind. Of, it's it's those it's those crazy fan theories. I mean, it's like some fan theories. Yeah, I can kind of get. Mm. I can kind of appreciate it. But it's like whenever it's like this is why it happened. It's because of this theory, <laughs> or this theory proves that this character is somewhat different. You know, you know how those Harry Potter fans are starting to just getting a bit too great, and you, and you just shout at them, read another book. I think with Star Wars fans, I just need to shout, watch another film. Because there are other films. I mean, there are, there, are, there are vastly superior movies like The Lord of the Rings. That's all you need. Mm. Just watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's yeah. better than Star Wars. It's much better. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love the old, I love the original trilogy, but you know, come on. It's been, it's been 40 years. It's been mm. more films. <laughs> the world of film has moved on. <laughs> there's, be- there's better films than Star Wars. There's um, John Wick part two mm. or chapter two. Right? Or chapter three, Parabellum. Mm. Or John Wick. <laughs> maybe all the films of Keanu Reeves just all of them especially Dracula <laughs> I've got I've got friends who are like proper you know corset wearing goths who go you know, who, um, who just um, they, they keep telling me about their love for Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula because it's the most authentic adaptation and then I'll just mention what about Keanu Reeves' accent and they just immediately look heartbroken <laughs> just like it's like oh no our argument it has a chink in the armour. Yeah. <laughs> if it, if it, generally, if they recast Keanu Reeves, it might have been one of the best horror movies of all time. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, because he, he was well known more for Bill and Taylor at the time, wasn't he? Yeah. So it would be, my dude, I am of noble intent. I don't know what the fuck it's I'm It's really, really difficult to do that bad kind of accent. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's not Dick Van Dyke level awful. Hello, Mary Poppins. I mean, at least at least in Dick Van Dyke's defence, no one told him it was bad on set. Like, no, he didn't know until the film came out, and he was working with all these English actors. No one gave him positive, like, like constructive criticism. I, it's like I think I blended in quite well. <laughs> Look, on, on the set of Dracula, apparently, like Anthony Hopkins was getting furious with uh, Keanu Reeves just how bad he was in it. <laughs> no, and I love Keanu Reeves. This, this makes me feel bad for talking about how bad he is in that film, but he was miscast. Like, I mean, not as bad as, like, some of Coppola's other movies. Well, like, he's done... Well, Keanu Reeves also did Much Ado About Nothing for Kenneth Branagh. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm still... I'm still I, I don't know if I can ever watch a Kenneth Branagh movie again after Artemis Fowl. It's been, what, three weeks since I reviewed it. <laughs> I'm still angry about Artemis Fowl. Um... <laughs> What are we talking about? What films have you watched this week? Oh <laughs> uh, well, it's mostly. Anything I mean, as happy as Seven? Oh well, I think I think I have a bit more of the happier side yeah. of films. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Just to go back on that, um, much to about nothing. Yeah, ninety three. Kenneth Branagh, uh, Keanu Reeves as Don John. 
Okay. Uh, Denzel Washington was Don Pedro. Right. Emma Thompson was Beatrice. Richard Bryars was Leonardo. Michael Keaton as Dogberry. It's really that's an interesting cast. That's a really interesting cast. May have to dig that one out. Mm. It sounds like it was just basically Kenneth Branagh's mates. Just and Keanu Reeves. <laughs> and Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't judge him in his performance in that because it's fine. You know, I haven't seen it, but like, I'm, I'm, I think Keanu Reeves as an actor is underrated. Mm. Like, um, I know he's quite, a, he's quite a minimalist approach in The Matrix, but I think he's phenomenal in that. And and and, and again, the John Wick movies, he's great. I just yeah. like it. And he seems like a genuinely awesome human being that I just want to hang out with and be his friend. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could also you can always say there's a, a few missteps in Keanu Reeves' film career, but to be honest, I think people there's a lot more positives coming out of the films mm. he is remembered for, like Bell and Ted, like John Wick, like Speed, uh, like Speed. Speed's as well. a great movie. So there's a, there's a lot of and even Point Break as well. Mm. So there's a there is a lot there to enjoy about Keanu Reeves. I feel like I've watched Point Break mostly from obsessing over hot fuzz. Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets referenced to. Wasn't to there hell. a remake of Hot um, of um, Point Break recently? There was, and it starred uh, Edgar Ramirez from uh, Last Days of American Crime. Oh gosh, <laughs> it didn't do too well. Has this chap been in a good movie? Carlos, I like the Carlos the Jackal movie. I haven't seen it. Uh, it's uh, it's like a European film. It's like it's like you can watch oh, it. Oh, yes, I've heard of that. Yeah, because yeah. I, I've talked about it previously. You can watch it all uncut for five hours, <laughs> or you can watch the uh, or you can watch the the shorter version, which is about two and a half hours. Right, nice. So it depends. If you want the whole story, five hours. If, just, you, if you like the abridged version, two and a half. Just hours. treat it like a like a long form like a um, long form a short TV series like Chernobyl. Just watch yeah. it an hour a day over the week. That's all you. Now, who's got time to watch a five hour movie? Uh, <laughs> indeed. I was like, I was, I was hoping to like binge on South Park. I wanted to have a proper series one to like twenty marathon. Then I realised just how much time that would involve be involving, mm. involving. That's a word, right? God, yes. I mean, my my mind words are not matching my mouth words at all today. Oh well. Like, feel free to prod me. Let me let me let me liven the conversation up with happier movies and happier topics. No more seven. No, <laughs> no. Well, I've been I've been carried on my um. My, I've been kind of fixated on kind of like oldie films, not necessarily like the obviously classic things of cinema, but like films from like nineteen thirties and stuff like that. So the golden age, yeah, like golden Hollywood. age. So one of the films I watched was The Awful Truth. Mm. Uh, it's a screwball comedy with uh, Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. Uh, they play a couple who decide to get divorced, but then they spend the rest of the film kind of undermining each other's kind of attempts to move forward in their relationship. So uh, Irene Dunn sort of starts seeing this sort of uh, business from Oklahoma and every kind of, every opportunity Cary Grant gets, he'll turn up inadvertently to either see, uh, one one time trying to see his pet dog, which he believes he owns, but in the, in the divorce settlement, uh, the wife gets the dog. Oh no! So he has. So he has a. He has a designated time where he can pop round and see the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like one of those moments just happens to be when she's try- She's being courted at the same time. And then there's things like it's like oh it's like oh, I've got this nice new young lady friend and all that sort of stuff. And it's just it's very screwball. It's very screwbally comedy. But it's it was quite charming. It, yeah. And the nice thing about films from the 1930s and 1940s they are also quite short. So the nice breezy breezy affairs but they're also you just kind of get swept up in the whole sort of silliness of it all i suppose um you're you, gonna, seem, you seem to be obsessed with Cary grant yes because i've watched another two Cary grant films this week can, as I, well. can I just interject i have every time i've spoken to ian on the phone over the last couple of last few days it's just been 
constant Cary Grant impersonations. And like, <laughs> it's, I, I don't know if you're gaslighting me or if you've just become so enthusiastic about Cary Grant. I, I do like Cary Grant as an actor. I think you should be an official Cary Grant impersonator. Oh God, no. Just no. like be hired to turn up at swanky parties. Hello, I'm Cary Grant. <laughs> I'm going to stop that oh, right now. Oh, don't go shy because we're recording. <laughs> I'm Cary Grant. Um, so yeah, so in keeping with Cary Grant, uh, also watched, uh, there was Operation Petticoat. This was a film mm-hmm. directed by Blake Edwards, uh, who went on to do Pink Panther and obviously those sort of comedies. Um, Cary Grant plays like the hard, hard as nails sort of, well, hardish sort of nails in, in movies at that time, uh, Submarine Commando, who or Captain, Submarine Captain, who is trying to look after his first uh, sort of first command. Uh, the, the boat, the, the submarine itself is not in its best condition and they somehow also get um, a naval officer drafted who isn't really an officer. He's more like, um, what's the word? He's kind of like... Um, Kind of like a chancy, kind of he kind of finds he kind of finds solutions in the most unorthodox ways, or kind of out of the box, out of, out of the box, and slightly illegal hey. ways. Played by Tony Curtis, so it's basically it's like he it's like Tony Curtis is supposed to be like an assistant to like a big admiral, um, and also is great friends with the admiral's wife. But he <laughs> finds himself drafted over to the submarine, and um, obviously they start at odds. But I think the more Tony Curtis character kind of helps out with the uh, ship in terms of getting supplies, getting things to fix the boat and so forth. Uh, Cary Grant sort of goes, he's, he's not such a bad chap after all. All that sort of stuff. Um, it's, it's, very, it, it's very breezy afternoon. It's a, like a Sunday afternoon film. You could really, and you could just kind of, you don't need to invest that much in it. It's like you just kind of like the humour as it sort of pops up now and then. It's like there's a moment where they somehow become a maternity ward. It's like they sort of taken a, a few refugees in the in the war, and there's like they're all pregnant women. It's like, oh, we've just become this maternity ward, and then every so often when a baby's born, one of the crew members are just celebrating for no reason. Like, it's a boy, it's a boy. You're not even the father, <laughs> but it's a boy. <laughs> sort of way. It's, it, it was very likable. Um, also, um, keeping with Hitchcock, uh, watched to catch a thief. Mm. which is Cary Grant is a retired cat burglar who is believed to be the, sus- the, the burglar behind a spate of new thefts on the Riviera in France. Um, so, he, so he hatches a plan to work with the police and one of the insurers to pose as a potential thief who might steal it in a way to lure out the, um, the real thief. Uh, also stars Grace Kelly as well. And their, their chemistry in this is... is really scintillating and it's kind of like it's kind of like it's not it's not sort of um original sort of jaw dropping Hitchcock this isn't Hitchcock bringing something brand new to proceedings this is kind of like Hitchcock just saying by numbers yeah I mean it's it's filmed in location in France most of it is and it's actually quite eye opening it's like when you because I watched it in HD on Amazon Prime um when you're actually on location in France the scenery looks absolutely stunning especially in high definition um, yeah, you get a couple of studio shots which kind of goes, oh yeah, that's, well, that's clearly a, a background. But obviously it's the filmmaking techniques at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't as perfect as it is now, I well, suppose. No, no, no. You, you, can't, you have to judge it by the time, obviously. Yeah. But as I was saying, it's like, you, obviously with a lot of Hitchcock films, he's doing something different. He's doing something mm. kind of unique. It's n- nothing's there in To Catch a Thief, but this is kind of like his most, I think it's his most accomplished uh, studio bit because it's kind of, 
it looks great. The acting's great. Humor's there. There is a little bit of thrill there as well. And it's kind of like, again, it's a nice Sunday afternoon film. I, I generally enjoyed watching it the second time round because I watched it before and I remember bits and pieces of it. But it was like I was a lot more invested in it this time around. And it was, oh, this is really, this is really nice. This is kind of like, this is, this is like golden entertainment, really. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else. Also watch Payback, which is Mel Gibson's. Uh, oh, was this, is this him going through his Liam Neeson phase? Uh, well, no, this, is, uh, this came out, I believe, 99. Uh, oh, right. This, so this is, this is prior to his publicised kind of fall from grace. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is at a stage where audiences were still very interested in Mel Gibson. Um, it's directed by Brian Helgeland, um, and it basically tells the story of uh, Gibson's uh, porter. He is uh, like just your standard uh, criminal thug. And uh, he gets double crossed on a job and left for dead. And he comes back and he wants he wants payback. Hence the name of the ah, film. So now, he's not like a petty debt collector. No, no, like no, not at all. <laughs> However, this this is quite interesting because the version I watched was the director's cut. Now, the interesting thing about payback, I I, I wrote about this on Bungazilla.co.uk in uh, Ferocious Five. Same story, different movie, and. Basically what happened in the original filming is they, they shot the film as intended. However, test audiences were not, were not particularly high and they were concerned about certain elements of the story. They, they were worried that Gibson's character was not likeable. They were kind of worried like, oh, audiences like to root for Mel Gibson. We're not really giving people much chance to root for him. The studio wanted to do some reshoots and re-edits or tweaks and bits and pieces. And... Um, they mutually parted ways towards the tail end of that because Brian Helgen sort of said, well, I filmed the film that I wanted to do. I, I can't just return to it and just rework it to try and make it work. It's like, I can understand what they're trying to do. It's just, I can't do that. I can't do that to my work in itself. So there was a mutual departing of the ways because of creative differences. Um, and the film had about 10, 12 days of reshoots where they changed the opening, they changed the ending, they brought in characters that weren't in the original film, uh, like Chris Christopherson as the evil head honcho of the gang. He, and yeah, they released that version and that version did moderately okay. It got good reviews. Yeah. Um, but in around 2005, uh, Mel Gibson's company, Icon, who produced the film, gave uh, Helgen the rights to go back and complete his original vision. So he was able to get copies of the 35mm print. He was able to kind of do what he want with it. It's like build the film that he wanted to see. So it offers a second... So this, a, is, a, this is a proper director's cut. This is a, not, not this, just a, here's yeah. a scene we deleted. Yeah, this is a proper kind of like, this is a different version of how things could have played out. So you've seen both versions? Right? I have seen both versions. And what's the superior version? I don't know, because I like both of them. I mean, oh, both, interesting. both of them have... Have well, I mean, well, yes. Yeah, like the original was the original was fine, or the original was okay, but you kind of get a sense of what Helgen was trying to do with his cut. Um, it's very much like a seventies, eighties grimy crime film. What's well, sort of uh, a French Connection? Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because the, it's not just it wasn't just the story; it's how the film was presented. So the ninety nine cut, the original theatrical cut, has a blue steel tint, very blues. Like there's not much color to it. It's blue. It's grey. It's mm. dark. The director's cut takes that away. So you've got a bright, colourful... It's like a normal sort of 70s, grainy sort of picture 
quality to it. So again, it's like it changes the tone, it changes the atmosphere of the film. Uh, different soundtrack as well. They they did brand new sound cues and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the big difference is here with the director's cut is there's a brand new opening to it. So it's it's not just Mel Gibson waking up after he's been shot several times. Mel Gibson's already been shot. He's just starting to get his revenge and he's just doing it very nastily. Uh, and then there's a finale, which is set on a train station rather than just a standard street. Yeah. And again, it's like the whole emphasis of what happens is completely different. It's still the same sort of conclusion, but different things happen. Um, and one of the, and there was also very subtle changes, like certain characters had kind of a bit more to do. Or in Gibson's case, he comes across more, more sociopathic than kind of relatable. So it's like there's some uneasy scenes. I think it's with there's one scene with Diane Kruger who plays his wife, where they get into a physical altercation, and it's like it's it's very minimal in the original cut, but here it's kind of like they are literally throwing blows at each other, and it's it's quite harsh to watch, but you kind of get what they were trying to do. Yeah. So it, I, it's, I've all, it's like I, I've done the article about five different directors' directors' cuts that give a different film. So things like Blade Runner, things like Touch of Evil, things like Daredevil and stuff like that. I find the director's cut of Payback much more interesting because of the process of how they went about sort of reconstructing the film, how about kind of recoloring, rescoring and stuff like that. I think that's that in itself is, is definitely worth watching. It's, it's it's almost a shame that I don't care about Justice League because I would love to. I'm mm. I'm kind of interested on how yeah. how you recreate an original director's cut. Yeah. such a huge. Maybe, maybe they might do a making of. If they do a making of and kind of highlight the key differences and stuff like that, fair enough. It's um one of the things I found fascinating doing the article was reading up on things like Blade Runner. Because obviously Blade Runner is well documented. There's there's no film oh, yeah. there's no film better associated with director's cuts than than Blade Runner. There's, f- there's four cuts. Isn't well, there? on I think oh no uh, five on the on the Blu-ray release, which celebrated I think the 25th or 30th anniversary, you can get five cuts. <laughs> so you have uh, there was the work print cut, there was the US theatrical cut, there was the international cut, there was the so-called original director's cut which is technically not Ridley Scott's film basically Ridley Scott gave them some notes and they just decided to act on those and then the final cut is Ridley Scott 100% in control so that is the proper director's cut but the 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 reason why things like the director's cut came about was because Warner Brothers discovered uh, an old 70 mil print of the film and it was clearly different to what was originally released. So they think, oh, this must be the original director's cut. And they started advertising roadshow presentations for it. So they're saying, oh, we're going to take this film reel to different cinemas, come see it. And they sold out a lot of screens. However, Ridley Scott saw what they found and went, yeah, that's not my cut. <laughs> so they they'd only, they'd only played it a couple of times, but they cancelled the rest. But because of the interest in Blade Runner at the time, they felt compelled to kind of go, okay, let's try and do a director's cut. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's strange. I, I love both Blade Runner movies. I mm. think they're, they're equals to one another, but they don't. They haven't really made. They haven't been that successful commercially. Yeah, they're not commercially successful, but critically, and I think fans of things like cyberpunk and sci-fi, mm. they they've enjoyed it more. So it's kind of like it's inter- it's great to see a director's way of adapting a story finally come to prominence. Mm. And it's like looking at again looking at other films I listed in the article, things like. Touch of Evil isn't necessarily a full and full director's cut. Because um, I presume that this is posthumous. Yeah, that one was posthumous because when the film was originally 
released Orson Welles, I think as one of his final studio uh, pictures. Uh, Orson Welles gave Universal a, a lengthy memo about the things he would do differently from the print that they were intending to release. Um, they ignored some of it. <laughs> <laughs> they ignored most of it. Um, but only in, in 98 or something like that, I believe, they, they started to kind of restore the film to what Orson had originally envisioned. Yeah. Um, so you can get you can get the Blu-ray now for about ten quid from uh, Masters of Cinema. Eureka, Eureka. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you've got you've got got the different cuts of the film in different aspect ratios as well for different audiences, which is really really weird. But still, have, you, have you seen all the old, the different cuts? I think I've seen well. I think from the set, I think I originally watched Wells's version in standard widescreen. And again, I need to watch it again because I think it's the, the bits that are very memorable, like the iconic opening long shot. Oh yeah, if you go if you if you're on film school, yeah, you, <laughs> you have school. to watch this shot. Yeah, because like. yeah, it, it's it's amazing in its own, own right. And watch it just knowing the fact that the security guard who like what five minutes in mm. kept fluffing his one line over <laughs> and over and over. It wasn't like twenty times before he got it right. I think so. <laughs> it's so yeah. stupid like that. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's like, so that's a touch of evil. I'm interested in, I, I'm a big fan of the original Superman movie, mm. Richard Donner, because obviously he, he was fired during production. Oh, this is Superman 2 you were talking yeah, about. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so have you, have you seen the, the Donner cut? I've not seen uh, Donner cut. I, so I, I remember watching the old Superman films. I haven't properly watched them. I think we have a copy of Superman 4 on VHS oh, somewhere gosh. around here. <laughs> oh, if, if anything <laughs> Superman related is in this house, it's that. Because it's amazing how the first Superman movie is one of the best still stands up as one of the best comic book movies of all time yeah and then three movies later it's the worst movie that's ever been made <laughs> just like <laughs> with Nuclear Man and they even managed to drag Gene Hackman back into the bloody uh, mix boat money boat money all about boat the money. money yeah absolutely all about the boat money <laughs> um, so so yeah I mean you can read the article on bunkzid.co.uk just go there and uh, look up Ferocious 5 I also have an article about uh, live action adult films that were turned into cartoons including Rambo amazing <laughs> you've spent the morning showing me all these Rambo cartoons which i didn't realize existed and they're just they're just something else <laughs> savage save santa as the name of the episode just or say no just say no oh my god the ninja dog the ninja dog i loved ninja dog because when i watched first blood that famous you know anti-war um, survival horror in effect yeah <laughs> where the whole point is john rambo doesn't want to fight <laughs> I thought, you know, this would make a great, really violent, inappropriately violent cartoon for children where he gets a massive... I have never seen a knife like that outside of the um, the Simpsons episode <laughs> in Australia. Like, just watching a kid's cartoon with a big knife like that. I, was just, I went into, think, you know, think of the children mode. I think it has the best comeback line ever. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, John Rambo's coming up against an evil henchman for the General Warhawk. It's like, you're going to die, Rambo. I'm going to kill you right now. He throws the punch. The punch hits the wall. Yeah, only the wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's fascinating. I, I, always, I always love the way these, these um, spin-offs of movies where they find a voice actor who sounds kind of like Jim Carrey mm. or Sylvester Stallone, but it's clearly wrong. <laughs> and, then you, and it's you can't quite you, you know it's it feels like the um the the, the casters have just been like that'll do <laughs> close enough 
It's kind of like, it's not full Stallone, but it's slightly understandable Stallone. It's kind of like a New Jersey Stallone. That's it's the like, <laughs> yeah, little squirrel, if you wanted an apple, you just had to ask. Why, why was he laying a trap for a raccoon that was stealing his apples? I don't, I don't. <sighs> he, he spent at least 30 seconds in a tussle with a ghost wolf. Um, yes, he did. <laughs> I mean, at least some, I mean, some of them are pretty b- bizarre because obviously they're based on adult content. But like, at least things like Conan the Adventurer is based on the, you know, that's a, that's a hundred year old series of novels. Like, But at least that one was kind of adapted more for kids, I guess, yeah. in that way. Because they were kind of, um, something I noted when I was researching that was they changed it so Conan was a bit more of a moral character, so he understood what was right and wrong. Because obviously so, the, the Schwarzenegger sort of Oliver Stone yeah, version. Yeah, <laughs> not, 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 particularly, uh, not particularly friendly versions, are they? No, no. no especially, no. especially with the, the, the destruction of the villages and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah, probably not, probably not good. Not probably uh, good for kids. Um, probably one more film we can briefly talk about we watched was uh, Casa de Ma Padre. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the fact that I had half a bottle of wine really helped with that film. Yeah. So right. um, this is kind of the same production team behind the Eurovision movie. Uh, Will Ferrell, uh, does Will Ferrell, a, Will Ferrell <laughs> does a kind of like an homage to um, Mexican filmmaking or trashy Mexican filmmaking. Really low budget sort of spaghetti westerns, and like yeah. soap novella as well, yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. He plays a, a humble rancher. Who, uh, who gets caught up in, in drug dealing and all that sort of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, Will Ferrell speaks pretty much Spanish for 99% of this movie. <laughs> it's not bad. It's, which, it's, which, is, which is quite an achievement and quite quite good amount of dedication to it as well. Nick Offerman plays an American character and his, his Spanish is atrocious. <laughs> and I think, I think sometimes we were kind of wondering, are they literally saying what the correct Spanish is or are they just making some of the Spanish up? It feels like it's a bit of both. I, I'm, I would need to watch it with the Spanish. Because it's like, yeah, helicoptado. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> um, but um, no, it, it, it was a very, it's, it's, it's only 80 minutes. It's a short film. It's quite niche, isn't it? It's quite niche. And uh, we'd probably only recommend it for probably Will Ferrell fans. I keep going Will Ferrell. Well, it was, yes, <laughs> Will Ferrell. It's Will Ferrell in this film. Like. Will Ferrell. There Will, Will Ferrell, yeah. Yeah, if you're a fan of Ferrell, you will enjoy this. There are just moments where I think we just creased with laughter, but I think that was mostly <laughs> because we've been drinking wine at the same time. Yeah, th- this, is a, this is a film you need to watch intoxicated, I feel. Like, now, it's very time, much... now it's time for your vision. <laughs> <laughs> I like that there's some truly awful animatronics, like intentionally bad, but the mm. fact that we realise it's the Jim Henson company yeah. like, who are fantastic they, so, they, they're really, so you've brought in the Jim Henson company and they're like what do you want us to do well we want you to do something really bad I'm like okay but, but we need a ti- we need a white tiger who's able to kind of give a vision and re- kind of talk I wish that white tiger had just been ju- dropped in the middle of the Tiger King documentary on Netflix I think it would really enhance that, that whole experience like uh, you need to watch the Tiger King documentary. I need to find some time to watch Tiger Just, King. You, you will make. You will watch the first five minutes, and then you'll like get your PA on the phone. Like cancel my four o'clock. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But uh, yes, that's, that is all the films on, on my list. And uh, yeah, so I think it's been a very varied week. So I, I think what we're saying is that if you want a happy, good time, drink a bottle of red and watch Seven. No. Seven, 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 no. seven. No, no, not at all. <laughs> it's such a happy lark. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy the enjoy the series that is Cary Grant films and you'll be fine. Imagine seven, but it's Cary Grant. <laughs> like his girl Friday, just that character dropped into seven. 
We're going to find this killer, you see. <laughs> Seven people have died. Seven deadly sins. Greed. Sin. Lust. All that sort of stuff. I don't like the blood. I don't like the violence. But we need to find it out quickly before we become slightly killed. There we go. We got a Cary Grant yeah. impersonation in the podcast. That's all I wanted. Right. So for this episode, we're going to have a little bit of a double dip of Guy Ritchie films. We're going to be looking at Rock and Roller and The Gentleman. So let's get adjusted to the world of uh, Guy Ritchie with a clip from The Gentleman. I want you to play a game with me, Ray. I don't want to play a game. Oh, please. No. I said play a game with me, Ray. Right. Lovely. I want you to imagine a character. Your boss, Mickey Pearson. You're too smart to be blackmailing us, Fletcher. Yeah. Sweet Mary Jane is my vice. Your poison, on the other hand, is and always has been the destroyer of worlds. You're out of touch, and I would like you to consider an offer. I am not for sale. The plot begins to thicken. Now, I can't be specific about the heroes and zeros, but our protagonist is a hungry animal. There is a lot of money hanging in the balance. Our antagonist explodes on the scene like a millennial firework. And has indirectly started a war. Right, so we're reviewing these films together because they're, it, it, it kind of makes sense because they're both Guy Ritchie films. Yeah. Um, and they, they come at very different, interesting points in um, Guy Ritchie's career. Uh, Rock and Roller, released in 2008, comes just after the critical and financial failure of Revolver. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Revolver um, obviously arrived with the bells and whistles of any sort of Guy Ritchie film, especially after Lock, Stock and Snatch. Him going back to things like the crime, wet the crime scene, all that sort of stuff. Everyone was kind of excited. But then Revolver turned turned up and it wasn't exactly what everyone was expecting. Um, it was all about the art of the con, the master of the con, learning how to play a smarter opponent to get smarter. And the the bigger the bigger the opponent, the bigger the... Uh, it, it was a bit of a mess. <laughs> Basically, I, uh, from, from my personal opinion, I love the style and atmosphere of Revolver, but I cannot tell you what, half of it bloody means it was that it was that confusing i don't think anyone involved in the film knows what any of it actually means well i have the us blu-ray um i have it on uk dvd as well mm. now the reason i imported the us blu-ray is because the film has a slightly different cut to try and make things make sense did they get harrison ford to do a running commentary oh uh, just the happy ending episode <laughs> the happy ending of it's like and they all lived happily ever after joy no, I, I honestly don't know. I need to actually, I actually need to properly watch the film again. Um, but yeah, Revolver didn't, Revolver didn't do too well. This wasn't a Guy Ritchie gangster film. So Guy Ritchie does a proper, one of his proper gangster films with Rock and Roller, which is kind of like, an, again, it's like the, the one thing that stands out about Rock and Roller is the amount of people in this and you kind of go, they're in this? Yeah. It's, it's quite, it's quite stunning. So basically the basic plot behind rock and roller is when a Russian mobster orchestrates a crooked, a crooked land deal, millions of dollars are up for grabs, drawing in the entire London underworld into a feeding frenzy at a time when the old criminal regime is losing turf to the wealthy foreign mobs. Um, because yeah, they're all intertwining stories again, like any Guy Ritchie crime film. Uh, so you've got uh, Gerard Butler, Mar um, no, you've got Gerard Butler, Tom Hardy and Idris Elba as a gang of thieves looking to make 
the nice bucks. Or they they staff them on only money to Tom Wilkinson's overall crime lord. Yeah. And they're having to deal with that. It's a bit Frank Butcher in this, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. And Tom, Tom Wilkinson is also trying to get money off the Russian mob because they want to have a land deal and all that sort of stuff. And the Russian mob have uh, Fandy Newton as one of their... Uh, secretary accountants who is also working with Gerald Butler's character to orchestrate some thefts as well so they can make some money she, off the she side. She does it for the frill, doesn't she? Yeah, she, she does she? it for the frill, yeah. And then you've got Toby Kebbell as a presumed dead rock and roll star who gets caught up in something to do with a, a painting or something like that. Basically, the best way to describe rock and roll is there's a lot of things going on and half some of it's interesting and some of it's kind of like what on earth is going on? So this film is a wall and everything that's been thrown at it is what we're seeing. Well, basically, it's basically Guy Ritchie taking what he knows best and what people love or people loved him for at the time and just thrown against the wall. Like I said, you look at this cast list though and it's it's quite astounding. It, it's, it's amazing. Like, even Ludacris pops up. Yeah, like. so, so Gerald Butler, Tom Wilkinson, Fandy Newton, Mark Strong, Idris Elba, Tom Hardy, Toby Kevill, Jeremy Piven. Um, it's it's quite an impressive list. Yeah. Yeah, Matt King even pops up, who's probably more famous as Superhands from Peep Show. He's yeah. one of my favourite characters in that. Um, yeah, the cast is phenomenal. Like, yeah. it, it just feels like, it, it, these all just like casual acquaintances of Guy Ritchie that he's just called up, like, do you want to be in a film? <laughs> it sounds like it. But then again, this this film also came out at a time just before the stock of, say, Idris Elba and Tom Hardy went through the roof. Yeah, because you can tell they're not unknown at this point, especially yeah. Tom Hardy. I mean, it's interesting seeing Tom Hardy being physically half the size of Tom Hardy in every other Tom Hardy movie. Yeah. I mean, like, Bane would swallow him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> For all this cast, they're not they're not really developed characters, are they? They're just, not they're, really just they're all... They're two-dimensional caricatures that are just thrown at the screen. Yeah, there's no. They're, yeah, they're all very, they're all very generic, standard guy Richie characters. I think the characters in Snatch and Lockstock had more depth to them than. Yeah, well, if they felt, I mean, obviously, that there's very little to expect. Deep characterization in a guy Richie movie is probably a bit, yeah. <laughs> a bit of a fool's errand. But at least with Lockstock and uh, and Snatch. There, there were different arcs. There were different. There were definitely character journeys. Yeah, throughout those, there was, there was a lot more compelling. Here, it, I didn't really care about anyone. <laughs> no, it's kind of like, oh, all this silliness is going on, all this criminal silliness is going on, but I just don't care. Don't care. I, I, I don't know if the hook is what, what's really at stake. Like, why? Why should I care about any of these characters? Like, <laughs> it's like they owe debts. They need to get paintings back. Uh, but no, no one seems to be particularly stressed about the situations. They're no, in. they all seem very relaxed. Especially um, uh, Johnny Johnny Quinn, played by uh, Johnny Quid, not Quim. Johnny yep. Quid, played by Tony Kebble, who who is this? Who is this actual rock star who's faked his death and he's come back? And he's kind of like the wise the wise old man of everything around here. And it's like, oh, there's this whole thing where he's having to like, um, oh, it's like towards the end when he's trying to explain what's going to happen. Happen is like, no, I need to worry just yet, boys. They're, gonna, they're not going to kill us while we're standing in the lift because then they'd have to carry the bodies. Because what's going to happen is we're going to go out to this car. They're going to shoot me twice, uh, once in the head, once in the chest and in the neck, just for good measure. And then they're going to kill you, put us in a car, set us on fire and pretend none of this ever happened. And it's just, it's just so... <laughs> it's nonchalant. Just, right? no, nonchalant about it. It's like, yes, 
I'm so used to this. There's second nature. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is that when there's just no tension. There's no drive throughout this film. It's just a lot of fluff that's mildly entertaining. I yeah. Mean, right? Yeah, it's, it's just, hey, we're just being, it's like, it's a breezy trip into London underworld crime. I mean, like, I I love I love Guy Ritchie and like when he when he when a Guy Ritchie movie's good it's bloody great, but I've I feel as though he's never actually spoken to a real person before. <laughs> like, <laughs> is that why every character has like these long sort of monologues? I don't think any human beings talk like the way he thinks at all. I don't think he's ever spoken to a Cockney. Okay, <laughs> it's like, like those are those are brave words. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, that's what's wrong. The gentleman. Um, which came out at the start of the year. Uh, it's a bit more, a bit more focused, and the the story behind that is Matthew McConaughey has is this um, marijuana business lord. He's been running the business for many, many years, making tons of money using the estates of Britain's wealthiest families, and he's trying to kind of go straight, and he's trying to find the right buyer for his farm. So he's trying to court this American, I think, played by Jeremy Strong. Yeah. And uh, everyone else around him is trying to sort of throw their own awe into it. So you have Henry Golding as uh, one of the Asian gangsters wanting to have a piece of the pie or something like that. Um, And then you also have just out of nowhere, Hugh Grant, who is, I think, probably the MVP of The Gentleman, to be perfectly honest. Oh, he's the glue that makes this all yeah. work yeah. yeah as as the sneaky private eye trying to trying to make some money out of this as well <laughs> I, yeah he's gonna blackmail the most notorious drug kingpin in britain and i'm sure it'll go well for him right can i can i tell you a story raymond <laughs> come on sit down on the couch have a whiskey with me i want to tell you a story yeah he, he's clearly enjoying every single second it was very much like paddington too only for adults mm. like um yeah he's just chewing the scenery in the best possible sense of the phrase yeah so and the gentleman comes after richie's done quite a lot of hollywood fare so he's just Sherlock come off, Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, Aladdin, Aladdin, King Arthur. So some of them, a good portion of those were very commercially successful. Aladdin got money. So the Sherlock Holmes films were, were critically okay and audiences loved them as well. Yeah. I mean, but, I remember, but, but, I remember because, and mostly because of Downey Jr. and Jude Law having great chemistry in the I film. was going to say, are his Hollywood ventures successful because of Guy Ritchie or was he just... A Man of Uncle wasn't that successful. That's the one I like the most. I think that's his strongest movie. <laughs> and even has, even has David Beckham as a projectionist in the film. Really? Yeah. Right. Yeah, he's a, he's like a Russian projectionist. And it's like when they're doing the um, the briefing to Army Hammer. Oh, and I they have an, and, they, and they have an issue with the projector. It says, "Oh, the funnel is like a Soviet Russian." Uh, one moment, please. I change. And it's like that's David. That's David Beckham attempted. Oh, not not as clear cut as his cameo in King Arthur. Which, I was going to say, which like, is even weird. Oh, I love David Beckham, but he's like he's not that great in terms of acting. Like, have, like, have you yeah. seen Have you seen his Only Fools and Horses special? Yeah. But, um, um, Beckham and Peckham. It's it's fun. It's a nice little tribute. It acts like a coda to the series. It's only ten minutes long. Oh, fair enough. But he can't act. He's just he's just he talk. has the, he has the look. <laughs> yeah, he only has the look. He doesn't have the voice, I suppose. No. But then again, that voice is also quite famous with him anyway. Now it's like just the, the soft spoken, soft spoken. Cool. I'm David Beckham. Yeah, that's all awesome. right. But uh, no, so you, yeah. you can do Cary Grant. I can kind of do David Beckham. We should form like a talent agency for impersonations. <laughs> Like, what do you do? Well, we've got Cary Grant. Yeah. 
It's the mm. Kerry Ground and David Beckham Mysteries. We solve crimes, don't we, David? And I, okay, sometimes I play football. That's really good. That's really good, David. Well, I just need let I just need let Vic know. What I'll I'm doing. go talk to Audrey. You go talk to Victoria. We'll meet back here with gin and tonics and maybe a board game of something. I like playing Monopoly. Okay, <laughs> Monopoly is a bit complicated for me. Okay, how about snakes and ladders? Like, uh, yeah. Tiddlywinks. Yeah. Pogs. How about football? I can't really kick a ball, but we'll give it a go. I, I only know football. Let me call up my friend Jimmy Stewart. He might think it's a good game. Oh, is this the third impersonation? <laughs> is Jim Stewart going to join in? <laughs> God, we're going far off topic there. But um, so, yeah, so the gentleman comes in at a stage where Richie's kind of returning back to his roots a bit. So, again, both films are him returning to his roots, one after disaster, a, after disaster the other after moderate success. success. Yeah. Um, and I think out of the two films where we've watched, I think Gentleman is the better film. And that's, oh, absolutely. And it's, it's because it, I think it's there's less characters, there's more focus behind it. The cast is quite reliable as well. Matthew McConaughey, Colin Farrell, uh, Eddie Marston, Charlie Hunnam, Hugh Grant, Michelle Dockery, all that sort of stuff. It's fairly, it's fairly good, reliable cast. It's but it's also quite funny. <laughs> yeah, I was generally laughing. I mean, there were a few few times where I started to feel a bit uncomfortable because mm. it, it does play with some of the uglier aspects of um, the, the the views these people would have on yeah. on homosexuality, on race, um, on as, as some moments where I'm not entirely sure if the film is playing with these themes or the film is becoming the thing which is, is attempting to satirize that there are some moments where I was I'm not sure if this is, is if this is playing with anti-semitism or this, there are moments where this is slightly anti-semitic um, I don't know that might be just be me being a bit too sensitive um, but mm. there, there are a few because I'm I might I like my comedy dark I like <laughs> so I can um, you know um, but yeah there are there are a few moments where I, I started to question the taste of the movie, that's probably the best way of it, if it was in bad taste. Mm. Um, I mean, his usual, his usual trademarks are there. So there's copious amounts of swearing, yeah. childish behaviour, ludicrous yeah. criminal enterprises. And again, the, the continuous plot twist that always happen. Yeah. I mean, it's I like, mean it's, it, it, you know where this film's going. Yeah. Even though it's... I'd, I'd actually say, like, The Gentleman is probably one of his cleverer movies. It, it, I think it just feels a lot more restrained and mm. mature. Yes. Even yeah. though there is some very childish humour in there. It's a mature person making an immature movie. Yes. As opposed to an immature person making an immature movie. And there's, yeah. a, there's a wild difference between the two. I, I, we're talking about like stand-up performance. I think the cast is great in rock and roller, but they're not really doing much. They're just, they're just basically turning up and saying the lines because there's not much demanded of them. They're kind of, they are kind of resting on their laurels a little bit. I think the standouts, if I were any in rock and roller, I think, Mark Strong's always reliable. Oh yeah, he's, yeah. Well, he's Mark Strong. He's just uh, Toby, and Toby Kebble, despite the fact that the character is fairly sort of bizarrely ludicrous in its sense of being the most wise person of all of gangsters, <laughs> he's still quite a charismatic fellow. Uh, he still has it. There's still an air of charisma to him, mm. so you feel a bit drawn in, despite the fact you're kind of going, "Why is a why is the stepson of a crime lord knowing this far too well?" I know that's probably because of the links to the crime yeah. family with his stepdad, but. It still feels that he knows way out of place. He just knows far too much at this stage of his life. 
No, I, I think the, the, char- the characters in The Gentleman are, are far better and the, the, the actors have a lot more to work with. Yeah. Even with they have more to work with of less, interestingly enough. Mm. Um, I mean, Matthew McConaughey is just his oh, usual... He's, yeah, he's just flawless. He's, he's his usual chilled self. Yeah. He'll just sit there like, I'm the king of the jungle. Well, he doesn't, he, he doesn't need to be any more than that. He, only give, he gives what he needs to give to make... I like, the, I like the, how in The Gentleman, McConaughey is obviously this this head honcho of this marijuana business, but he's restrained and you only see him become unhinged when things really do hit mm. hard. So it's kind of like uh, he goes into absolute rage the moment anything happens to his wife. Yeah, It's just kind of like he's he's happy to deal with business and business well, here and there. But it's, the more moment- in, it's more impactful, isn't it? Yeah. Because we've had less. Yeah. yeah. It's like the moment you really threaten the king, you really take something away from the king or try and damage the king in any way, shape or form, he is going to make you pay. Mm. And I think that's a really good, I think that's a really good credit to McConaughey as an actor, but also it gives a bit more, again, there's more depth, there's more character to these people in The Gentleman than there was in Rock and Roller because it's it's just far too fantastical. It's far too uh, over the top. Yeah, and I think another fundamental difference between the two is that the let's face it, the 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 the, the con of rock and roller is pretty boring. I mean, who cares about land deals? Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, it's it's, slight, it's 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 kind of amusing when it talks about the corruption of the councillor character and things yeah. like that. You know, the tennis scenes are pretty. I was funny. like, like buttering up is like, yeah. Now, now he's coming in to butter him up. He's like, he's just laying him up, laying, getting him ready for the big, big push. <laughs> he's like. He wants you in the front row, the VIP seat. You are the most important person in the universe right now. Yep. That's all this stuff. And it's kind of like, it's the whole thing of the lighter says, like, oh, I can't be my lighter. It's got your name on it. <laughs> it's like the counsellor. <laughs> so there's, there's amusing touches, but I mean, ultimately it's it's a plot that's not that exciting. The, the, no. the, the, the way the drug operation works in The Gentleman is generally quite intriguing and mm. quite unique. I can't think of them. Yeah. The, 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 the way it ties it, I won't go into too much details, but the way it ties in with the British aristocracy, I've, The Gentleman, so yeah. to speak, um, I thought that worked really well. And I, I can't think of... Um, yeah, it was just a really unique take on something that's been done ad nauseum for like yeah. the last century of film. Mm. Um, in terms of characters as well, I actually think one of the standout performances from both films um, was um, it's Colin Farrell um, as the coach. Oh yes, and he's, he's, he's again, it's he's only in the film for about five minutes. He's not in it that long. It's like about, about five, five ten, ten minutes. minutes. He's yeah. still, he appears at pivotal scenes. Yeah, so. and he he he's, he does, he uses his time so well. He he just steals every scene he's in and he does. and I, and I like the fact that you've got you've got these characters in the gentleman especially Colin Farrell's character he's um he's a former criminal who's trying to encourage the youth to the youth of the, the youth yeah the, the he's trying to go he's trying to encourage youths to not dive into that world of crime he's so focusing on gym thing, yeah like boxing and stuff like that and it's kind of like he feels like he has to be the honourable person. He's trying to come. He's trying to solve the problem that some of his students get into by trying <laughs> to be the most honourable person in this deal. So, like, I know my boys have done wrong. I'm sorry. I don't mean it for it to happen. Tell me how we can make this right. <laughs> it's really, so, and yeah. you're really rooting for him and yeah, his boys. Got, like, yeah. <laughs> I do, oh, I do like, like the fact that his crew as well, as a side, well, obviously as this mentor figure, he's trying to make them um, become better young men. But they're, they're side, on the side, as you say, they're committing all sorts of criminal acts and recording them for their various like rap music videos. <laughs> like, 
with drill and things like that. And it's so funny. I wonder if Guy Ritchie actually did the music video stuff or if he brought he pro- someone he else in. He probably did. He has done music videos and, and adverts before, so mm. it wouldn't surprise me. Because the, the, the music videos are hilarious. <laughs> They're bloody great. It's just like, I love the fact that the one is just the end. <laughs> the credits roll as the full music video plays. I love little touches like that. But <laughs> it's just like... But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just like the character. It's like the characters all seem to have a purpose in the gentleman. Yeah. In rock and roll, they're just, they're just there for whatever they're just, reason. They're just surplus to requirements or they're just kind of like, oh, we need a gang of, we need a gang of just local, local folks. Oh, we'll just get, uh, we'll just get Butler, Elber and Hardy in for that. Okay. We need a reliable right-hand man. Oh, we get Mark Strong. Mark Strong was playing a right-hand man in Revolver. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, we'll just get Mark Strong in. Mark Strong's probably appeared in more Guy Ritchie films than anyone else at this rate. <laughs> so Revolver, Sherlock Holmes, uh, Rock and roller. He's, he's he's Moriarty, isn't he? Yeah, he's Moriarty yeah. in that one. I swear he's done. He's probably done a few more Guy Ritchie. Films. I think he has. I think right. he may he may have popped up. He's, he's, he's just he's one of those filmmakers. Is just a filmmaker. So one of those actors who just appears in everything. He's reliable. That's yes. the good thing. Yeah, he's good as well. Excellent. That's what you want. Mm. Like guaranteed income for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think out, out of the two, I think if you if you wanted to kind of find a film along the same lines as Lock, Stock and Snatch, probably Gentleman's your better bet. Yeah. It definitely, it feels like out of all his crime movies, those are the three superior ones, definitely. I mean, mm. I don't think the Gentleman quite matches Lock, Stock. No, it's not on those same iconic levels, but the, the, I think, I think especially for the fans, it will remind them of why they liked Richie as a filmmaker in the first place, especially things like The Creative Curse and all that sort of mm. stuff. Um, but I think there are, there are little bits in there that you can enjoy, get sort of uh, wrapped up in, especially things like Hugh Grant. Yeah, Hugh Grant, like I, like I said, he's, this, is, this is the best performance from Hugh Grant since Paddington 2. It's effectively the same performance. <laughs> just, yeah. just one's more violent and cockney and the other's in a Guy Ritchie movie, obviously. Mm. Obviously the other way around, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I, think that, I think I described... Gentleman on my review of Bungzilla.co.uk as just just the palate cleanser because it's like Guy Ritchie's did had done a lot of Hollywood films, some of them obviously had to be for family friendly audiences in terms of Aladdin and stuff mm. like that, and this is him just kind of going right. I just want to do something that I'm very comfortable with. I can just bish bash bosh throw that out the window. And that should uh, have been the subtitle. Yeah, <laughs> Gentleman bish bash bosh <laughs> Guy Ritchie. Uh, yeah, he just he just it's just a set, it's just a nice simple film for him to just to sink his teeth into have a, have a little bit more fun in criminals and then go back into the swing because I know he's working on Aladdin 2. I think they're trying to do a sequel to Aladdin. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, a billion. Uh, yeah, I think they are trying to. Um, I mean, hopefully, hopefully they'll do like uh, Return of Jafar or they'll do King of Thieves. King of Thieves. Mix them up. Why not? Yeah, mix them all up. It'll be yeah. fun. be fun for all the family. Um, so yeah, the, the funny thing with rock and roll is they had the, they had the sort of, the guys were returning the real rock and roller and I didn't realise this was it at the end, until the end of the film because I, because the film just ends and just go, oh yeah, they were trying to make a second film and it just didn't happen. Uh, there's, uh, Guy Ritchie has written a sequel. Oh, man. And he, he says he's been talking, I think 2011, he mentioned like he wants Joe Silver to give him money to make this one. Yeah, because it's produced by, um, Dark, it was produced by Dark Castle, mm. which was Joel Silver's production company. And they were behind some of, they were also behind some of the Liam Neeson uh, action is post taken, like Unknown. Yeah. Um, and I think they also were involved in certain films like, not maybe The Losers, I'm not sure. Uh, the, the biggest film I know that um, off the top of my head of Joe Silver produced, obviously, The Matrix. But it wasn't. It wasn't. That was. Probably, no, no, that yeah. was. Uh, yeah. I think that was under Silver Pictures rather than Dark Castle because Dark Castle was was 
his sort of collaboration with someone. Just before we wrap up, the one thing I want to say, something that's really striking. I, I know <laughs> the theme of this review is gentleman good, rock and roller, not so good. Mm. Um, the cinematography in rock and roller is so bad. It's like, very grimy. It's bland. It's, it's Gerald Butler jumped from 300 to rock and roller and they both had the same palette. And what, it's like, it's like what well, everything's beige. Well, with three hundred, it was obviously it. Obviously, you've got that golden. Well, brown it works hue, for three hundred, but but they've also crushed the. They've sort of like crushed the colours, bring out the contrast, mm. really make it striking. Rock and roll. This is it's just flat. Ni- nice, nice sort of brown, brown tint to everything. But what were they thinking? It just looks horrible. It's one of the most miserable looking films I've so ever I showed, seen I showed you the trailer to Revolver before we recorded yeah. Revolver looks more colourful Revolver looks amazing like yeah. aesthetically I mean I've, I've dipped my toes into that film and I'm just a bit like what mm. <laughs> I'm still annoyed Jason knowing. Statham hair really <laughs> he doesn't work he needs to keep it keep it off keep it off um, I'm more annoyed about Revolver having, having no credits <laughs> um, I'm, I, I was working at this multiplex when it came out and um, I dropped the film off. It's like the film arrived and we talked at the film up to the projectionist and they opened it up just to check what film it was. Oh yeah, it's Revolver. And then he picked out a note which was with the film reels and just read it. It's like, dear projectionist, this film has no end credits. When the screen goes to black, just simply bring up the lights. Thank you. Why? So we had to, so it's like at stages, we just had to have an usher on the door and be ready to go in just to tell people, yeah, the film has finished. There's, there's, there's no, there's nothing wrong is with it, the film. It, it has finished. Was it like Volver in space when he does his art piece? goes, it's not finished. <laughs> it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it, it's not just a black screen. It's, like, it's, it's a black screen for about two and a bit minutes with a piano piece, which is interesting music. It's like mood music. And there at the bottom it just says copyright, da 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 and that's it. How do you spell something like that? So yeah, it just has like your standard standard sort of copyright notices at the end. Oh god, that's infuriating. But, but, but yeah, generally, I think that one or two times we had to go in and actually tell people the Get film out. had <laughs> film had finished because it's like the worry is someone's going to come and say, like, "I think there's a problem with the film. I think the film's the, I think the film stopped." It's like, yeah, it has. Why? It's ended. What? Yes. To be honest, I'm amazed that people waited to the end of the film or were they just trying to see what the hell was going on I think they were I think they were still trying to figure out what on earth everything meant <laughs> and I, like, like a, I, I still stand by it. I think I think Revolver visually and with soundtrack is great I really yeah. really like it but I know full well that the storyline is a load of bollocks <laughs> that should be the subtitle for Revolver. Revolver is a, a load, load of bollocks, of bollocks, but, you'll, of bollocks. But, but you'll enjoy the view. <laughs> <laughs> Revolver, the album by the Beatles is better. Yeah, yeah Considerably better. Yeah. Um, so in terms of these two, yeah, also going back to the point of like cinematography, like so rock and roller, I really disliked. Gentleman, although it's it's um it's not as flashy visually as, as say Revolver or even it, like Man from Uncle. It still looks... Nice. Yeah, the art direction's great. I mean, the, the costumes throughout are wonderful. I love the sort of the, the chavy track suits that they wear. The tweed suits for Matthew McConaughey and his, flat, and his flap cap. Oh, they're so good. Every, everything someone wears in that film, I think, I'd love to wear that, but I would look like a tit in you, any you, of it. You want, you want that sort <laughs> Like of me big... in a sports car. I'd, I know I'd look like a tit, but I want it. Do like, you want that big sort of... Uh, the cardigan br- thing. The brown, the brown leather coat of uh, Hugh Grant's... Character. No, he's the one character who looks like a tit, and I know <laughs> that's clearly by design. <laughs> I think he, maybe maybe he felt um, inspired by his own battles with the tabloids. 
Yeah. Oh, no. yeah. I mean, Hugh Grant famously yeah. hates the tabloid press. Yeah. <laughs> but much to his detriment, probably. Like, so he must have enjoyed the various scenes of the editor. Yeah. Um, I don't know which editor he's based on, but like, he seems like an amalgamation of all these terrible tabloid, yeah. like McKenzie-esque types over the years. Um, but yeah, the, the, the costumes throughout, I thought, were excellent. Um, um, who's the... Um, Oh, the chap, the beard, the one that... Oh, Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, he, his, he wears this sort of mustard cardigan all the way through. Oh, yes. It looks great. It's the first time in my life I've watched a film and I thought, I need a cardigan. <laughs> it's like, I, I like Charlie Hunnam in this. Yeah, he's very good. He, again, he's, he gives an understated performance. He, he knows when to elevate things. Like, it, 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 it works. Especially in the scenes in the flat, I think he's particularly yeah. effective or when they start, start chasing the, um, the other, the youths, and more it, youths. And then inadvertently he gets in, uh, it gets spotted by a lot of kids. Yeah. And he sort of starts giving them money and he's like, starts offering them money. But then he just goes, I also have a machine gun attached to my belt. <laughs> Where did he pull that? Did he pull that out of his cardigan? I don't know. Uh, no, I don't know. Oh, God. Again, some of, the, some of the luxuries. I mean, like, I'm pretty content in life. I don't feel like I need a lot of money to be happy, but I really want that barbecue table. Oh, towards the end. Oh, it's like, and I, I want to be able to pour out a 1,500 pound bottle of whiskey. And, just... yeah. and then get, get, it's like when someone just randomly comes around and just go, let me just throw a steak on this barbecue table. 80 pound steak. Why would a steak cost 80 pound? It must be the most luxurious tasting thing on the planet. I'm, I'm intrigued. Ian, go out to co-op and buy me an 80 pound steak. That's <laughs> where so you get them, right? <laughs> Maybe you need to go to Waitrose. Wait, oh yeah. Oh, Waitrose. <laughs> is, there, is there a posher version of Waitrose? I don't know. I don't know. I love going to Waitrose. It's the only Harrods. time. Harrods. Harrods. There, there we go. go. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying, I love Waitrose because it makes me feel middle class. It's the only time. <laughs> but um, yeah, um, what other things we can talk about? So in, ter- in terms of, so comparing these two movies, we think the plot is definitely more focused in The Gentleman. Yes. Um, it's the gentleman is more entertaining. Yes, because it's, obviously every Guy Ritchie movie has a narration. Yeah, and I find it, the narration is what makes me enjoy or dislike a Guy Ritchie movie. And I, I found the narration for um, Rock and Roller quite grating. Well, well you, you mean such great narration from Mark Strong? It's not. It's just not. Again, hang on, hang on. Oh, you're going to quote him. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm going to. I'm gonna try and recreate that Rock and Roller environment for you. Right now. So How are you going to make the world beige? Well, people just have to imagine it, aren't they? <laughs> You'll have to imagine the beige. <laughs> You'll just have to imagine the beige. We both know I'm going to have to kill you. There so, it is, our first Bane. Cr- oh, no, I've already mentioned Bane in this. Why do we mention Bane in every episode because of Film Because Bane War? is amazing. It is amazing. Where is that? It's the Bane of my existence. <laughs> oh, 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 get out. Where are we? Where are we? Archie. Archie, 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 Archie. Here we go. So this is how your narration for Rock and Roller goes. So people ask the question, what's a rock and roller? And I tell them, it's not about the drums, the drugs, and the hospital drips. Oh, no. There's much more more than that, my friend. We all like a bit of the good life. Oh, you need to turn around. Guy Ritchie's lawyers are right there. With a cease and desist order but, but right I'm now. A, but I'm a rock and roller. We all have a bit of the good life. Some of the money, some of the drugs, others the sex game, the glamour or the fame. But a rock and roller. Oh no, he's different. 
Why? Because a real rock and roller wants the effing lot. He actually says effing, doesn't no, he? No, <laughs> clearly, oh, clearly not. But I'm just sort of thinking for our listeners and trying not to swear too much in this. <laughs> yeah, our podcast are 12A. We're allowed one F-bomb. Yeah. Oh, well then, because a real rock and roller wants to fucking No, you've already lock. sworn earlier. Wants to fucking lock. Oh, now we're 15. <laughs> Damn. But yeah, I mean, even, even that me just going for that, it's like, that is that is exactly how the film is the the line is delivered in the film. And, and I just I don't like it. And it, the, the, the gentleman, I, I did find the first 10, 15 minutes sinking into um, Hugh Grant's narration a bit jarring. But when you when it just clicks, you just yeah. go along with the ride, and it is a delight. I mean, he is a he's so good at playing creepy arseholes. He's <laughs> <laughs> found a new niche. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's let's do let's do some star ratings here. So I, I think two for Rock and Roller. Yeah, I was thinking two. Yeah, it's like it's not it's not a complete disaster. It's much more it's digestible a... than some of his other films. I mean, he's much more digestible than Revolver in terms of story, but in terms of star, Revolver still beats it outright. Yeah. Um, whereas Gentleman, I'm tempted to give it four stars. Yeah, I think four. I mean, basically, is it was it's a Guy Ritchie palate cleanser. It's stuff that he knows he can do, but this time does it well. He was able to kind of just put it into a nice narrower sort of field of storytelling rather than just going. I need all of London involved in this. Yes, it's just no, no, just this small little portion. Yes, it knows what to do with its characters. It knows when to tell what parts of the story it needs to tell, and it's it's super focused, and all the pieces come together really nicely. Yes, yeah. So, um, I think it's. I think in in, in I think also basically, um, if you've not really been a fan of Guy Ritchie films, you're probably not going to enjoy either one of these two films. To be honest, no, no. I mean, I mean, if you haven't watched Snatched or Lockstock, anyway, I, I would recommend them. I don't know if they're available online or any platforms. At the uh, I think Snatch is on Netflix. Cool, because that, that that is, I think Snatch is my favourite mm. of his films, and Brad Pitt is amazing in it. Absolutely amazing mm. as the um, a travelling bare hand boxer. <laughs> Like, oh, you, oh, that's got, a brutal sport. Oh, you got Alan Ford as Bricktop. Oh, yeah. It's like, do you want sugar? No, love, I'm already sweet as it is. <laughs> is that where that comes from? Because I've been I've been quoting that for years. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's that, or it's because uh, Alan Ford had a small role in uh, Lockstock, mm. but not not as not as mean and deadly as as uh, as uh, Snatch. Yeah. And again, it's like Snatch and Lockstock was kind of like you just kind of blended the two casts together in some some way. They all still appeared in their own sort of unique forms. I, I like to think they're both in the same universe. They're part of the Guy Ritchie cinematic universe. So, is, so Rock and Roller and the Gentleman are all part of the same universe. Absolutely. All of them. <laughs> anyway, there we go. So, yeah, that's our thoughts on the Guy Ritchie double. And as always, if you would like to share your thoughts, do get in touch. Email us at filmraw at bungazilla.co.uk. And that brings us towards the end of another episode. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, yes, we will be back with a brand new episode very, very soon. So until next time, stay safe. Enjoy your cinematic in viewings. I've been your host, Ian Bolton, and joined, as always, by Christian R. Allen. Goodbye. Watch Man From Uncle. It's criminally underrated. And with that bombshell, we shall leave it there. Keep it cinematic. We'll see you very soon. Bye-bye.